CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and uh, I'm so glad to be back with you. Um, uh, Many of you know uh, Janice, my wife Janice, and I took a long weekend, went up to my hometown, Chicago, to see what was happening up there. And one thing was happening, it was really cold, (laughs) and I'm glad to be back where the weather is a little bit uh, warmer. My thanks to uh, Kevin Riley on Monday and Tamar Hallerman yesterday for filling in for me. And uh, you as listeners all told, you know, not all of you wrote, but any number of you said uh, what a terrific job they both did, which is not surprising to me at all. So we have a lot to talk about on the show today. Let's get right to it. Um, Of course, on Wednesdays, Greg Bluestein, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution political reporter, the author of Flipped, uh, mm. which is apparently selling. You're really selling a lot of copies of this mm. book. Yes, Greg? It has been such a blast. Um, and going around the state, last night I was in Athens at a bunch of events in Atlanta. I have an event in Atlanta right after the show. And mm. heading to D.C. on Friday and Savannah on Saturday. So it's been a real fun mm. time going around and talking about the book. Very exciting. Uh, I do also want to uh, uh, congratulate you and your colleagues um, it was announced this week that the AJC political team won the Toner Award, which is a very prestigious award uh, that comes from the uh, Newhouse School at Syracuse University uh, that honors outstanding political reporting. And it's named for Robin Toner, who was a wonderful, the first woman national political reporter for the New York Times. But before that, Robin was at the AJC. She died way too young. I I was fortunate that I got to know her quite well. I traveled on presidential campaigns with Robin all over the place, and she was just a joy. And Greg, to win the award that's named after hers is a really thrilling thing for the newspaper. It was, and we were so honored, and we we got a little heads up about it. Um, And I was lucky enough to have a co-byline on that story, but that was David Wickert, my colleague, really led that for three or four months, and he spent a lot of time and effort and energy um, piecing together the exact timeline and relied on reporting from the entire team and, um, and a great digital presentation that I think helped seal the deal because it wasn't, does not look like your typical AJC story. Everyone should check it out online. Yeah, it was a very, very deep dive into how the election unfolded and then the, uh, all of the, the uh, uh, controversy around uh, the fraudulent, the charges of fraud and the like. So, again, congratulations. Um, we're joined today by Senator Sonia Halpern, who, uh, as uh, she said to us before the show started, is we're down to her favorite time of the legislative session, you said, mm-hmm. Senator. Uh, the session is scheduled to end on next Monday. And I guess you need to tell us why these last few days are so much fun and so exciting for you. Well, good morning. Glad to be back with you. I, uh, I, I said that this is the time of lots of political theater. I actually, I love people watching. And I just tell you, 
this is a great time to people watch and just to see some of the back and forth of what's happening. We have a lot of different bills. We're all hoping that they're going to get across that finish line. And the question is, what will they look like? Will they get across that finish line? And if they do, what will they look like? So it is a tiring time of the year as we take up lots of bills. This morning, Mm -hmm. we've got 17 on the floor uh, just today. But um, it's a busy time, but it is it's that it's that exciting time as we head towards the end. We will all be glad when we get to day 40 and get to the end of day 40 and then get to all <laughs> take a little break and pause. Yeah, Edward Lindsay, who was a longtime state representative from Atlanta, now is the head of the uh, government relations team for the state of Georgia. Edward, you also know this is the time when you got to start watching your back. To see who's out to get that bill that you're hoping to get across the finish line, <laughs> and and to see what gets gets uh, snuck in at the last minute. And if I can just real briefly tell and and warn uh, Senator Halpern, uh, I do recall one year when I was the majority whip, and we sent the conference committee uh, a three-page bill that the Senate and House couldn't agree to, and then at 10:55 on p.m. on uh, Sunday died. <laughs> Uh, they bought back a 34-page bill uh, and dropped it on our desk. And my friend sitting next to me, uh, the majority leader, said, you know, as I'm looking at it, saying, you know, what are we going to do? And I held both of them up, the old bill and the new one, and sort of mm-hmm. waited. I said, I don't know about you, but I'm voting no. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's in well, it, but I don't have time to find out. Yeah, I suspect, and I'm not asking you to talk about it now, but I suspect you're down there working on a few measures that you've been uh, dealing with throughout the session and probably have a lot to to accomplish in the next few days, too, right? We do. We've got uh, about 12 or 13 different issues. Some we're trying to get through and some we're trying to make sure they they wait for another day. So. And then I'll have Greg Bluestein yeah. down there asking me questions, and, I'll, and I'm going to try yeah. very hard yeah. not to answer any yeah. of them. <laughs> exactly. Doing the, yeah, yeah, doing the people's work is what he'd like mm-hmm. to say, uh, Greg. Alan yeah. Abramowitz is back with us, professor now emeritus of political science at Emory University. Alan, so glad that you are back uh, with us today. And I, you must watch these final days of the legislative session. I don't know. With some, it's kind of gleefully in one way because it's so much fun, as Sonia Halpern says, to watch it unfold, but also wondering what kind of trends we're going to see emerge from the session, Alan. Well, I do try to pay attention to what's happening down there, uh, follow the, the coverage in the AJC, which is really excellent, uh, and, and certainly focusing on certain types of bills that, that concern me, especially those involving you know, ele- election elections and, and voting uh, issues and uh, we've had we've had a number of those in this session mm-hmm. um yeah and, and in a couple of minutes i want to talk about several bills that are really hanging in the fire uh that i think it, depending on how they go in many ways will define the theme of what this session was all about but before we get to legislative stories greg I want to talk about the latest from Donald Trump in relation to the Georgia election. You were in coming on Saturday night when he gave his fiery speech to a rally of uh, supporters, uh, uh, you know, condemning Brian Kemp, boosting uh, David Perdue and the others who he's put on his ticket, who are on his 
uh, ticket. But Greg, uh, within a what forty eight hours after having Purdue up there with him on the stage, he did an interview on One America Network News, whatever they call it. And I want to play what he said and then ask you to respond to it. And I endorse a lot of people that are long shots. Look, in uh, we're fighting a governor who's done a very poor job in Georgia and a horrible job on the election. And hopefully David Perdue's going to win. I mean, that's, you know, these are not sure things. And if I lose one along the way, which you have to, right, they're going to say this was a humiliating experience. They'll make it like I could be 100 wins and one loss, and they'd make it sound like this is a humiliating situation. These are really dishonest people. Greg? Yeah, it sure sounds like he's hedging. sure sounds like he's backtracking, downplaying expectations. Um, because the truth is, he has endorsed a lot of candidates, but many of them are incumbents. Many of them are not facing um, stiff challenges. There's a reason why um, Georgia is the biggest test of Donald Trump's clout in 2022, and it's because of the people he's endorsed, not just David Perdue, but also um, down-ticket candidates who are running in obscure races, who are very unknown, relatively unknown, I should say, uh, running against incumbents that are backed by Brian Kemp. So this is a big test of of Donald Trump's clout, and it looks like he's already trying to lower those expectations by even, in his words, calling, seems to be calling David Perdue a long shot. Because right after he, he mentioned long shots, he mentioned David Perdue's name. Do, um, Brian Kemp is ahead in the polls, double digits in some of the polls we've seen recently. He has a fundraising advantage, and we all know it's coming next week, which is a 40-day period of bill signing where he'll, if, if, they're, if they play it right, they'll They'll have a bill signing just about every day that will command attention, free media, um, and and continue a blitz of, of free media as well as spending millions of dollars on um, on airtime as well. So um, David Perdue is about to face an all-out blitz, and this week is very important for him because now it's hard for him to make the case that people don't know that Donald Trump endorsed him. He just got a blizzard mm-hmm. of media attention about the Donald Trump rally, and if his poll numbers don't start to edge up, then it sends a signal to his supporters, but also to Donald Trump's camp that, hey, is this guy worth investing more money into? Alan? Uh, yeah, that sounded like a classic Donald Trump to me. Um, and, and in fact, um, it sounded to me like, I mean, almost like uh, Donald, Donald Trump was uh, uh, doing a parody of himself. It's almost like something like you would hear on Saturday Night Live. Um, <laughs> Trump hates to be seen as a loser. That's the one thing that he he really hates almost more than an, anything else. And, and I think the fact that we're seeing him uh, seem to back away, uh, distance himself from David Perdue is, I think, pretty significant. Um, but, you know, this claim that, um, that, oh, this is just one race out of many and uh, doesn't really mean that much if, uh, if, <clears throat> if David Perdue loses, that's, that's uh, nonsense. Um, you know, he, he's deeply involved here in Georgia. I think that the uh, Georgia governor's race is the single most significant race where he's made an endorsement, where he's trying to uh, help a challenger to defeat an incumbent Republican governor, something that's very difficult to do. And it looks like now, like that's not, you know, not, not going very well. And if, if it turns out that way, I think that'll be a significant blow uh, to the former president and, and could even have ramifications for uh, a, fu- a future run for uh, the White House in 2024. 
Mm-hmm. Edward, um, we, as, as Bluestein just pointed out, uh, Purdue lags in the polls. We know he's having apparently difficulty raising the kind of money he needs to mount an effective campaign against um, Trump. And, and so I guess the question becomes now, he needs, he needs momentum. And, and with this message from Trump hanging now in the air, does this really make life even more difficult for Purdue? Well, I, I think it does, and and quite frankly, uh, Senator Perdue is learning the hard way that uh, when it comes to loyalty uh, and Donald Trump, it's a one-way street, uh, not necessarily uh, heading out from Trump. It's usually it's demanded by anyone uh, connected with him to Trump. And uh, yeah, it, it it is a message at the absolute worst time. Uh, you know, they did, uh, as uh, Greg pointed out, they just finished a, a big rally in commerce, although the size of the rally was much smaller than uh, than historically uh, we've seen in other uh, Trump rallies. And so that also sends a, a message to a lot of folks here in Georgia that perhaps Trump's reach is not as great uh, as some had feared. And uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see the impact not only on David Perdue, but also on the other uh, candidates that uh, President Trump has endorsed. I mean, keep in mind, he came in and endorsed a wide swath of folks, uh, including a large number of challengers to existing existing, um, office holders. He very much wanted to come in and reshape the Republican Party in Georgia. Uh, and um, and all the, the rally and then some of his other uh, comments recently and the impact on the polls really brings into question his ability to deliver what he promised uh, so many of these candidates that they would get into the race. Uh, you know, David Perdue is in this race because of Donald Trump. Make no no doubt about it. I mean, Donald Trump uh, cajoled him, worked him. Uh, massaged him, did everything he could to get him to get into this race. And for him to now back away uh, has got to be a a hard pill for the Purdue camp to swallow. Senator um, Halpern, I suppose as a Democrat, you can sit back a little and sort of take a certain amount of pleasure in watching this uh, inter-party fight going on over there among the Republicans. But, but I keep asking this question. Of, first, I've been asking it to myself, and I've mentioned it on the show a few times. If, if Brian Kemp emerges as the winner of the primary, given how, how far to the right David Perdue is running his campaign, <clears throat> given how completely aligned he is with Trump now more than ever, claiming he's going to put people in jail if he's elected governor for the fraudulent 2020 election. So all of this leads me to wonder, is, is it possible that Purdue is making Brian Kemp, who in fact has been a very conservative governor, uh, look a little more palatable to people who otherwise would not be thinking about voting for a Republican in the general election? I mean, I think that is definitely quite possible. It's really interesting. So I, I have been thinking about this um, matchup between Kemp and Purdue as it relates to even just the General Assembly, because... Because it, there is definitely this force where everybody's feeling like they need to move more right. And ultimately, you know, what, what really happens to the work that we're doing in the General Assembly if, if some of the folks who are there, who are Republicans, who are, who are conservative but also are reasonable, right, end up getting usurped by somebody who's 
further to the right than they are, who's not going to be reasonable about the things that we're trying to do and the approach that we're trying to take. I mean, so I, I've actually been looking at it thinking it, it, it's fascinating in any other time. If we were not in the kind of political maelstrom that we're in, a sitting governor who's had some of the successes, honestly, that a governor Kemp has had would not have a primary challenger at all. So it's just fascinating that he's got anybody at all. And it does move the conversation more to the right, which, you know, from my standpoint, is, is dangerous for the work that we need to do for all Georgians. Alan, do you want to weigh in on something? Oh, I think that's a very good point. And we're seeing this uh, happen in other states as well. Um, so what, what the, the presence of these Trump-endorsed challengers here in Georgia uh, and of candidates in other states either endorsed by Trump or at least trying very hard to get Trump's endorsement uh, in states like Ohio, and, uh, where there's a Senate primary going on, in Pennsylvania, where there's a Senate primary going on, in Arizona, uh, where you have uh, primaries for governor and Senate going on. We're seeing very similar kinds of, of, uh, of, of, of phenomenon, uh, and it's moving the entire Republican Party to the right. So while Kemp, I mean, I think it's true that, that in, a, in a way, Purdue's challenge helps Kemp to, to look you know, more reasonable, um, we have to keep in mind that over the past year or more that Kemp himself has shifted to the right uh, and has uh, endorsed a, a whole bunch of policies and, and taken positions aimed at uh, appealing directly to Trump voters and you know, to the Republican base here in Georgia. And I think he's been pretty successful in doing that, which is one reason why I think that uh, despite Trump's endorsement, that, that produced challenge is, is not gaining more traction here. Well, you know, one thing to keep in mind, and it, it's easy for us to all, always just focus on, on Donald Trump and his impact on the Republican Party, but for a, a lot of these legislators, particularly just after redistricting takes place, most of them are facing uh, a district in which, you know, as low as 10 and oftentimes as high as 40 or 50 percent of their constituents are brand new. And, and it's usually in a safe, either Republican or Democratic district. So a lot of these legislators are having to go home and introduce themselves to brand new voters for the first time. And so the red meat that will generate the base uh, is, is very important. And a lot of these legislators aren't so much interested or concerned about the general election in November, they're wondering whether or not mm -hmm. they're going to be able to uh, survive a primary challenge, because a lot of them are getting primary challenges as a result of redistricting, too. So that's really the number one thought on a lot of these legislators' minds, uh, is, not, is not the impact in November, but whether or not uh, they're, what they vote on today will have a positive impact when they face uh, the primary voters, many of whom are primary voters that they will face for the first time in, in May. So you, you, I think we need to keep that in mind. And Bill, to that point, um, you know, your colleague at GPV, Riley Bunch, had a great story on, on the culture wars aspect of all this. What was being said at the Trump rally, you know, we focused a lot on the election fraud, the, the lies about election fraud, I should say. Um, but, you know, what else was being talked about front and center? I mean, the first words out of Herschel Walker's mouth were about transgender athletes, right? Those are the issues that are dominating at least the Republican side of this debate right now. 
um, in the final days of the legislative session, um, because as Ed said, those Republican lawmakers want something to go back to their primary voters with to energize them um, in May, not as much in November. And that's why one of the big questions right now at the legislature is whether or not you know, that transgender um, uh, athlete bill will pass, whether or not some of these other school-related measures will pass, um, whether or not we could see surprise legislation coming up. Because as was mentioned, you know, people are playing offense as much as playing defense because there's any sort of surprises that could come up in these final days. But that has been what's dominating um, the, uh, the, the, Trump, the, the Trump rally was as much notable for the talk about these other issues as it was also for um, the talk about election fraud. Um, all right. Uh, thank you for that conversation. I do want to talk for a few minutes about uh, what's going on down at the Capitol in these final days of the session. Um, and I want to start with, with uh, two measures that were very, very well uh, uh, received in the House, that where the House gave them big margins in supporting them. But they've run into interesting obstacles over on the Senate side. Greg Bluestein, um the one that I would like to start with is Speaker Ralston's mental health bill, which is a sweeping reform of the mental health uh, 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 structures of Georgia. Georgia has the worst mental health record in the country, according to many uh, researchers. Um, and Ralston said from the very start, this was the single most important piece of legislation that he could imagine passing this year. It one over went over to the Senate, and there's been some pushback. You know, it it feels like senators right now may be moving back a little bit more toward the Ralston bill. But what's going on there? Do you imagine are they using this as a bargaining chip in some ways? Are they willing to give Ralston more of what he's actually asking for, but they want something in return? They're holding the bill hostage to get something in return. Um, are there legitimate concerns about the measure? What's your sense of it? And then let me bring in the panel. Yeah, I mean, it's making legitimate forward progress. And for a while, it looked like it could have been caught up in this whole misinformation. Um, this, was, this was not only is it Speaker Ralston's top priority, but this was the top priority of, of leading lawmakers from both parties. Um, one of the rare bills where there is overwhelming, not just bipartisan consensus, but overwhelming um, a push to make this a priority, right? Like to put political capital behind it. And for a couple days, it looked like it could have been gummed up by a lot of misinformation um, from critics who were characterizing it falsely. Um, and instead, you know, the Senate certainly has some differences and there's, there's some concerns that Senate's, um, some of the Senate's changes waters down the intent of the bill. But what we're hearing from the Speaker's office mm -hmm. is that um, there is room for consensus here. This is not going to be kind of, the, you know, a big, huge World War III at the Capitol over this, which it could have been, right, um, if the Senate had um, <laughs> indicated it was not going to move forward on this bill or make even more sweeping changes. This could have been something that really um, dominated the final days of the legislative session. It still might, but right now we're hearing from the Speaker's office and from lawmakers involved that there is room for common ground. It might not be exactly what the Speaker wants, but I think it'll be something, sounds like it'll be something that he's happy with in the end result. Senator, uh, Greg referred to the disinformation campaign. You watched it unfold uh, from your chamber. It was, uh, it was extraordinary. I mean, claims that the bill gave comfort to pedophilia, gave protection <laughs> to pedophiles uh, as just one 
uh, measure of what th- they were claiming. But there, it, it, it was an example of just how, uh, how ubiquitous disinformation campaigns have become uh, in so much of our political life. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I'll tell you that um, I believe because I sit on the Health and Human Services Committee, which is where that bill was heard in the Senate, I received no less than 250 emails. Actually, one day, actually earlier this week, I received 100 emails in like an hour and a half on this issue. I've received so many emails that are saying, for the, for the most part, there are some that say, please support. But a lot of those emails were saying, please oppose this bill. And it absolutely laid out. There were three different variations because, you know, these are automatically generated. So there was one variation of the bill that laid out seven very specific reasons why this bill was um, antithetical to Georgian's values, including the piece about pedophilia. It also, though, outlined the fact that if the definition of mental health was going to be the World Health Organization definition, that that was a non-starter as well, because remember about WHO and COVID. So, but there were seven really very specific things um, you know, really most of which were not at all steeped in reality and that just took a top line and ran away with it in ways that were unfathomable, really, um, had you read the bill. So there was that variation. There was another variation that just basically said, this is a bill that impedes on our freedom. Um, And so, you know, what I I will say is that that was really going to be a delicate dance because that that was the true conservatives. I mean, I'd never gotten email from even like the Atlanta Tea Party conservatives before, and I started getting emails from them about the bill to be able to kind of going back to the conversation we just had, try to figure out how to create a, a bridge between what those folks really much further to the right were thinking about this and what we are actually intending to do with this bill, because it's very true. There's nobody at the start of this session who was in disagreement around the fact that mental health was going to be one of the pride points coming out of this session. So I think there's still desire to get there. And so the Senate made some changes, um, but we'll get to something that actually is a great bill. Edward? Well, unfortunately, you know, this is not something new that you see any time that the legislature takes on a weighty issue and tries to, to do the hard work of governing. Uh, you see this happen. I recall in 2011, uh, we were passing and working our way through a, a sweeping bill to, to attack human trafficking. It was the first comprehensive bill Georgia had undertaken on that. And we were being attacked by, by some folks who were actually claiming that we were endorsing prostitution. Uh, you know, which was totally ridiculous at that time. Uh, the, the fact that this is the sort of bill that, that tests the General Assembly on both sides of the political aisle on their willingness to govern uh, and willingness to, to take on the hard issues. Uh, there is uh, no other issue that I can think of that impacts every family that I know, every family that we all know, uh, than a bill that tries to bring Georgia forward on the issue of him uh, on the issue of mental health uh, every family is impacted by this in one way or the other the bill uh, that was proposed by the speaker and endorsed by so many folks on both sides of the political aisle uh, 
takes Georgia uh, light years ahead of where it is right now, and it's desperately important that we get it passed. And I applaud folks on both sides for doing so. The folks that are fighting it uh, like they did on our human trafficking attempt back in 2011 are folks that I, I like to put into the group called CAVE, which is the Citizens Against Virtually Everything. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, uh, and it's important for the legislature to, to step, to, to step uh, around those folks and let's get this done. This is such a vitally important issue and, and, the, and the most important issue of this session. Alan, before I get to a break, <clears throat> I want to throw one thing out here. You know, I, I thought, you know, Sonia Halpern said it, you know, the, the WHO, the, the Senate bill now uh, removes the WHO definition of mental Ill, mental health, whatever, uh, and says it should be the state, what the, the definition of the state has had in place. But it's an example, as she points out, of making connections that have no logic whatsoever in disinformation mm -hmm. campaigns. We were, WHO came under fire in the early days of COVID. Some people think for good reason uh, because of the way they initially handled it. Nevertheless, it became a demon of the right. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, it must mean that WHO has to be erased from everything <laughs> that we deal with when we talk about health and, and public health in any way. It's just so typical of how this <clears throat> sort of thing works, Alan. It, that's exactly right. And I think what that reflects is the fact that we have a, we have a, a, a significant segment of our population right now. It's a minority, but it's, a, you know, it's, it's not a small group who have feel this very deep mistrust of, of government, mistrust of political leaders, um, and, and who are ready to respond to uh, this sort of disinformation. And, uh, you know, without that, the, the disinformation wouldn't, wouldn't really be doing uh, the kind of harm that, that it is. It, quite frankly, one of the most important reasons, I think, that, that uh, we're seeing this is that uh, this attitude has been encouraged and, and uh, has, has been uh, exploited uh, and, and built up by uh, certain political leaders, and most notably, of course, uh, uh, Donald Trump. Um, you know, this was a big part of, of his message uh, and a message received. You know, and uh, you know, this was something that was already out there. He didn't create this. <laughs> mistrust, but he certainly exploited it. And I think we've seen a deepening of it. And, and, and we see this now in, in even something like this mental health bill in the response to that. Greg, quick comment before the break. Yeah, I just want to dispel any notions um, that this is involved in the last minute shenanigans between House and Senate. There will be lots of other shenanigans between the House and Senate. But uh, as we were talking, I heard from the Speaker's office that basically the Senate has worked well with the House on this. They haven't bargained over it. It's been good faith the whole way from the Speaker's office. So this is one of those rare occasions where um, it looks like there'll be a, um, some sort of common ground between the two chambers. I, I th thank you for that. I, I have to say it really is a, a wonderful thing to realize that in real time uh, we can get a response. I'm the one who suggested the bill may be uh, held hostage in some ways. So if, to be able to get a response from the speaker's office while we're on the air to dispel that uh, is one of the things I love about uh, our work on this show. We got to get to a break. Back with more in a minute. Emery's Alan Abramowitz, State Senator Sonia Halpern, 
Edward Lindsay and Greg Bustein join me for today's show. Uh, Greg, another measure that's uh, uh, still uh, in the Senate after passing the House is this election bill, uh, which we know um, initially uh, the Speaker and the Governor had said, we don't need any more election legislation <laughs> this session. Uh, they end up uh, coming forward in the House with a bill that had a number of provisions that we can get into if we need to in the next few minutes. Interestingly, the bill went over to the Senate, and uh, the Senate had a, a hearing in which local election officials came forward and gave testimony saying, essentially, why are you doing this to us? One mm -hmm. Joel Natt, a Republican member of the Forsyth County Board of Elections, said, quote, you're going to waste time. You're going to cause me to lose poll workers. I have 400 poll workers that work for our board. This is 400 people I could see telling me after May have a nice life, and it's hard enough to keep them right now. And there were other election officials who came forward and uh, disparaged the bill as well, Greg. And now the question is, what's going to happen to it? Yeah, that's an important point that you made because it wasn't just Democratic election officials and Republicans. Uh, it was being called security theater, basically just all for show. And, and, and unfortunately, mm -hmm. it's for show. Be, they viewed it as just a show that would hurt their, their ability to process votes, to administer elections. And that's the concern here from the people who are basically the unsung heroes of our democracy, the people on the ground floor of making sure that our ballots are cast and, 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 and properly tallied. Um, we don't know where this is going to go yet. We don't know how the House is going to respond. But essentially, the Senate shrunk a 39-page bill to a two-page measure um, that, is, that is completely stripped back. It leaves only a requirement that businesses give workers two hours off to vote either on Election Day or during the three weeks of early voting. So something that, you know, has bipartisan support behind it um, rather than the, um, the more sweeping bill that, of, of course, could have continued to change. Um, you know, things happened the last days of the legislative session, and it could have even been tacked on to uh, target absentee ballot drop boxes and other issues that some conservatives um, support uh, in terms of um, uh, scaling back. So it could have gone in a lot of different directions. We're still not sure exactly where it goes. But you mentioned at the very top of, uh, of, of the segment that both Governor Kemp and Speaker Ralston felt like said it before the session. We already have one of the strongest voting laws in the nation, in their view. And why, why change it? Um, Alan, we should point out, I think, that, that SB 202, the bill that uh, caused a lot of controversy when it passed a, a session before last, uh, was primarily concerned with voting, how you vote. Uh, mm -hmm. This one has a lot more to do with how elections are uh, processed, how votes are counted. That sort. Of, it it requires uh, an election office to allow citizens to do a hand inspection of actual pa ballots, uh, mm -hmm. among other things. Uh, it, it's the sort of thing that I can understand why election workers would be very skeptical. Right. And, and I think, once again, um, what we're seeing here with these election bills, um, and frankly, with the original election bill, but certainly with the, this bill, is, uh, again, a, a response to the, the big lie about the stolen election of 2020. Um, and this is an attempt by some Republican members uh, of the legislature to uh, cater to the Trump base in their district, to appeal to those primary voters, as uh, Ed Lindsay mentioned, you know, many of them are concerned about the potential for a primary challenge uh, and, and trying to fend that off. And so 
they're trying to do anything they can to demonstrate to uh, their base, and uh, because most of them are in safe Republican districts, uh, that you know, that they are doing whatever they can to address that those concerns, even though those concerns are largely baseless. Um, but I'm encouraged to see that there's, we're seeing some evidence of bipartisanship here in the way this bill was handled, uh, and, and the fact that it was drastically scaled back in the Senate, and many of the uh, provisions that the local election officials were objecting to were actually removed from the bill. So we'll have to see you know, what ultimately comes out of this. But I do, I do find that an encouraging development. And Senator? no, and, and just, it is significant that both Republicans and Democrat election officials came out to speak against this bill. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the, that's the thing to key in on is that a lot of times, you know, we might focus on more of our larger metro areas and we may think that the bills that were being put forth will impact, you know, kind of certain swaths of people without recognizing that everybody across the state then has to live under those new laws, that there are people behind these pieces of paper. And ultimately, you know, we've got small counties that, because one of the provisions in that bill was around allowing nonprofit um, donations towards helping you to be able to, um, you know, basically pay for running elections. That's something that would have been disallowed in the original bill. But that matters to folks throughout the state who actually rely on those donations in order to be able to effectively run the elections. The other piece, too, is just as a reminder, SB202 was passed last year. This will be the first, you know, major election under these new bills, uh, under this new law. Election officials are still trying to work that out. We just finished with redistricting, so they're also just loading in new precinct information. There is a lot already new about what our primary will look like in May, and adding on this extra administrative kind of blockages just complicates it significantly for everybody across the state. And I think the focus on the poll workers is a really important one, too. The fact that it's already hard enough to get poll workers to want to do these jobs now, particularly following the kind of reaction that we saw to the 2020 and 2021 mm-hmm. January elections. Well, as a as a new member of the state election board, uh, I, I hear from a lot of state uh, elected officials all over the all over the, the state, and, and and what I hear time and time again, and and I believe it's absolutely right, is sort of building on what uh, Senator Halpern said, which is election officials need time if there's going to be any change in the election law uh, to be able to put uh, in place any changes the legislature comes up with, so that elections run smoothly. Uh, SB 202 uh, put forth a lot of sweeping changes in how we're going to run our elections. Uh, that takes time to put that in place. And so then to come back in this year, regardless of maybe the merits or the lack of the merits of a particular proposal, you know, you, you got to keep in mind you only have a short ramp up uh, from the time the legislature lets out until the next, until the election uh, in November. And so you know, we have to keep that in mind, and that's why I was so glad to see uh, election officials on both sides of political outcome forward and go, look, this is a, for want of a better term, a train run-on-time issue. If you want the trains to run on time uh, in November and to be able to to seamlessly uh, administer a very critical and probably a tight election, 
and be able to get the election results out in the time in which people are used to seeing election results get out. Don't 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 do too much this session. Uh, give us a chance to adopt what what you proposed, what you put forward last year, and to implement it this year, so that we can uh, have everyone who wants to vote to be able to vote, and then we're going to be able to count them uh, accurately and have people have trust in the outcome. Those are the, the central issues for all these election officials, and, and the legislature needs to keep in mind um, the difficulties that they face. And I'm glad to see that they have. Edward Lindsay, I really, when you come on, I should always mention <clears throat> that you have been become a new member of the state election board. And I want to give you a quick compliment before we take a break. At at the event that uh, we did with Bluestein last week, there were a number of uh, political people, uh, and one of them came up to me, uh, a pretty significant leader, and gave you a compliment, Edward. They said that um, with you on the state election board, there is a feeling that um, you're going to cut through a lot of what we've seen in terms of the, uh, the politically motivated uh, uh, efforts to change how elections are run and that you're going to have a level-headed approach to things. So I thought you should well, hear that compliment, and you should hear it on the air. <laughs> I, I appreciate that, but let me also add, I, I, I've got to know the other ones that are on the board on both sides of the political aisle. And I think we've got a lot of good people on the state election board. Uh, yeah, that I, so I, I'm, I'm, yeah, that was not an yeah. No, no, I recognize that. I just wanted to give them a a, 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 a call out as well. All right, okay. Let's move on. Let's get to our final break of the show, and we'll have more when we come back on Political Rewind. Greg Bluestein, to confirm what the Speaker's office uh, said to you in a note in the middle of the show about how the Senate and House really are working together to try to make this mental health bill work, your colleague Maya Prabhu just posted a story on just that. The lead of it says, Georgia state lawmakers in each chamber have reached an agreement on legislation that aims to require insurance companies to cover mental health care the same way physical care is covered. It will be debated on the Senate floor uh, today. And, and that was part of the uh, contention here, whether it should be treated completely the same way that uh, physical health is. So, Greg, that's a very good sign, I think. Oh, it's a huge, it's a, it's a, it's a very good signal. And it clears the decks for the, the rest of the contentious legislation. At least lawmakers can get a, a major bipartisan piece of uh, proposal out of the way and focus on some other issues that might not be nearly as uh, consensus-driven the last days of the legislative session. Senator, that, that, I think that's an important point to make, that with all of the, uh, the bills that are floating around down there that are so divisive in terms of uh, partisanship, Democrats and Republicans, mental, this mental health bill, and a, and a, a scaled-back election bill will be signs of, you know, in the election bill case, perhaps senators listening to the people they represent. And in the mental health bill, Democrats and Republicans acknowledging this is a problem they all have to work together on. Yes? Yeah, I mean, we've had, you know, we, 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 do, we do a fair amount of things in a bipartisan manner, but on some of the big stuff that everybody kind of seems to be able to read about, it doesn't always um, ring true. I think that what a mental health bill does is it buoys us all 
leading into the final days of the session and reminds us and kind of grounds us to what we're here to do and and reminds us that we can do we can do good work for Georgians. I mean again the mental health piece is one that touches every Georgian and is significant. And if we can get to that then then we, we can get past the rest. This has been a hard session, I will say, um, for those of us in the minority party, because it really is a lot of the the things that have been in the media have been more it's a culture war type issues and bills that have really gone through at, at a mighty pace and have been very discouraging for us as Democrats. A mental health piece of legislation is a signature piece of legislation. And it is something that we can all be proud of and feel good about as we head into these final days where there will be more fights. All right. Um, I, with, we've got just a few minutes. And Ellen Abramowitz, I'd like to turn for a minute to a piece that you wrote for Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball. You're, I think our listeners know by now that you're one of the great analysts of data uh, uh, you crunch the numbers and in, and, and in terms of elections. And this article was particularly interesting because it's a subject we've discussed on the show but never gotten anywhere in terms of an understanding on. The question is, where are Hispanic voters headed? Are they suddenly vo- uh, leaning more Republican than in the past? Trump did pick up more Hispanic votes uh, in mm-hmm. the uh, elections that he was in, and you you have written about that now uh, for Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball. We're going to uh, publish a link on our social media. Tell us basically what you learned in looking back at, at voting <clears throat> data about where Hispanic voters are, a big a block that's increasingly important here in Georgia. Correct. So uh, what I wanted to do was take a, a, a look back over several elections to see whether we're seeing any indication that the Hispanic vote, which is becoming increasingly important uh, nationally and uh, here in Georgia, uh, is in fact you know, trending in one direction or the other. Obviously, after the 2020 election and uh, after the elections of 2021, there's been speculation about whether Hispanic voters might be um, shifting in a, the direction of Republicans. And what, but what I found was that it's pretty hard to find any evidence of any clear trend one way or the other. What we do find is that um, the Hispanic vote has been his, historically has, has tended to be dem- democratic, lean democratic, uh, usually by a pretty big margin, but that um, the share of the de- vote that uh, goes to democratic candidates, and this was mainly looking at presidential elections, but that share has really varied widely. Uh, and uh, I found that looking at exit poll data uh, in presidential elections at the national level, I found it looking at exit poll data from Florida over several elections. I found it also looking at some of the local election returns themselves from some counties uh, and uh, with large Hispanic votes, um, that there's been a, a wide range, uh, you know, and from, uh, for you know, low up 50, upper 50s to uh, over 75% for Democrats. And I found that one of the correlates of that, what seemed to explain at least some of the variation over time, is that the Hispanic vote uh, is uh, influenced to, seems to be influenced to a greater degree than the vote of some of the other uh, major uh, demographic groups by uh, the party of the incumbent. 
that Hispanic voters vote more heavily for the incumbent party, regardless of whether it's an incumbent Democrat or Republican. When there's an incumbent Democrat, they've tended to vote heavily Democratic. Uh, With an incumbent Republican, including Donald Trump, they tended to vote more Republican. In fact, Trump's share of the Hispanic vote was not at all, uh, uh, it was not extraordinary given uh, these these patterns. So um, so that's just to say, I I don't think we can necessarily see uh, or conclude that there's any trend here. So, Senator Halpern, this is important because uh, Democrats are watching uh, that the, the question of whether Hispanic voters are going to continue their historical uh, uh, trend of tep- typically voting Democratic. But as Alan Abramowitz has learned, uh, swinging back and forth more than we might uh, have, have realized in recent elections. Well, I think this is why you do see the Democratic Party trying to take additional efforts to make sure that under that big, broad tent of people that we welcome to our party, that we're making sure that we understand the concerns and are able to create opportunities to um, support the needs of these different constituency groups. I mean, this is the challenge when you've got a huge tent and a lot of different folks that um, share the values that you have or some of the political attitudes that you have. It's really tapping into how to best express those through governance and or through legislation. Edward, from the Republican side, give us your quick take as we're running out of time. Well, Republicans need to be reaching out to broader group of demographics than they have in the past. That's just the bottom line. If they wish to uh, maintain the majority in Georgia and and we and can get back the majority uh, nationwide. Uh, no party can uh, can simply sit on its hands uh, and take any demographic group for granted or assume that they are either going to always be with you or always be against you. Uh, that's not good for democracy. Uh, we as Republicans we need to to work very hard in the Hispanic community as well as in the African community. African-American community and every other community as well, if we wish to maintain the majority here in Georgia. That's at the bottom line, as demographic Georgia change. Last, very quick. Greg, journalists are paying more attention to the Hispanic vote than ever uh, before, which is, of course, important. Yes, and that's why I'm so interested in the fate of Insurance Commissioner John King, the first Latino um, statewide official, see how he does in November, and in May, more importantly in May. Greg Bluestein, Edward Lindsay, Alan Abramowitz, Senator Sonia Halpern, terrific conversation. I really appreciate all of you being on Political Rewind today. We're completely out of time for today's show, but we're back with another brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. Bye, everybody.